All right, if you've got your Bibles with you this morning, would you turn with me uh, to 1 Peter chapter 3? If you want to follow along, uh, you can find that in the bulletin, the passage I'm going to read for us, uh, or you can find it on page 1015 of the uh, blue Bibles that are in the racks in front of you. It's been now two weeks. I was really thankful for, uh, in God's providence, Dave being able to preach for, uh, for me last week, given the things that we've had going on in our own lives and some speaking engagements this week. So I was thankful for Dave, but it's been a couple of weeks since we have been here in 1 Peter. So let me just remind us real quickly of where we are before I read the three verses that we have in front of us this morning. Peter has been giving to us for a, a, a number of pages now in your Bible very specific instructions that apply to very concrete spheres of our lives. And the instruction that he's been giving to us is how to live honorable lives. Honorable lives that are honorable in the sight of the Lord and honorable in the sight of the world as the world watches what we do. And we've received those very concrete instructions from him. And then what we saw last week is that having done those very concrete spheres of life, he then broadened. He went out from there and said, okay, let me, let me summarize this for all of us, or let me apply this just in case you didn't see how that connected with other areas of life. And so he went very broad in verses 8 and 9, basically saying in, in view of two things, in view of the fact that God is a merciful God, and then secondly, in view of the example that Jesus Christ has left for us, this is what we looked at two weeks ago. Peter says, finally, all of you have five things, unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. And then he continues, do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless, for to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. Now, our passage for this morning are the three verses that follow what I just read for us there, verses 10 through 12. And as I've already indicated, those are a quotation from Psalm 34. Peter is quoting here this portion that I'm going to look at for us from Psalm 34 in support of verses 8 and 9 that I just read for us. I guess in one sense, I could have preached these verses when I preached 8 and 9 because it's as if Peter, just the way we might speak, we might encourage somebody in a particular area and say, as the scripture says, and then we'd quote a verse to uh, show that this is what God's instruction has been for a long time. That's what Peter is doing here. But frankly, these, these sections are so rich and so full that I didn't want to put them together even though they, properly speaking, belong together. So as I read this for us, you need to hear them as supporting what came in the two verses that preceded it. This is then uh, the living word of the living God. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. 
Let's pray. Lord, thank you for these words. Thank you for the eternality of your word, for the truth of your word that cuts across the generations. We pray then that you would help us, your people now, to receive your word, to hear it, to apply it in our lives as your word. We pray that you would speak to us today through these words. In the name of Jesus, amen. I hope that one day in the eternal kingdom of God, I will have the opportunity to sit down and listen to David and Peter as they would discuss together, David discussing uh, Psalm 34 and how Psalm 34 arises out of the situation at Gath and Peter interacting with him over that. Let me just remind you of the context of what is taking place in Psalm 34. That was both, of course, what we've read as the call to worship, the Old Testament reading, and then the same quotation that comes in 1 Peter. So a reminder, Psalm 34 arises out of the situation when David was in Gath. David was on the run. He was fleeing for King Saul, from King Saul, fleeing for his life, and he ended up out of Israel proper and into Philistine territory. In particular, he ends up in the city of Gath, which, by way of reminder, is Goliath's hometown. And Achish is king in the city of Gath, and as he goes into Gath, which is an odd place to seek refuge, he goes into Gath, and the people who are there recognize him. And they sing the song that was said several times in 1 Samuel. They sing the song, they, or they don't sing the song. They say, isn't this David about whom the song is sung? Where he's killed his thousands, and uh, Saul has killed his thousands, but David his ten thousands. They go, isn't that this guy? And David gets word of this. David sees that this is the interest of the people. And the scriptures tell us that he was afraid. He was afraid of Achish, the king of Gath, and what Achish would do to him. And so David, in that situation in Gath, feigned madness. And, of course, we have that incredible description of the madness that he feigns and the way he does it, that he's insane, uh, that we get from 1 Samuel. And as a result, Achish is like, I don't need another crazy man in my kingdom. I've got enough of those already. Get this guy out of here. And David is delivered from that situation. And in celebration of the Lord's protection of him, on reflection of that, David pens or David writes, David composes what is Psalm 34. Now, I still, having said that, I need to hear David explain it. I just, I need, I want to hear him walk through how those things match up together. I'm not sure that I understand it completely, but I want to hear him talk about it. And I want to watch Peter. I want to watch Peter nodding his head in agreement and then take up the story and say, David, I hear you. That's exactly what I was experiencing myself. That's exactly what I was trying to communicate to the people in my letter. I was taking up your words because they fit so well with my life, with our situation of the people who were living in the first century AD. He's already, Peter alluded to uh, Psalm 34 several times and quoted from it, but I want to see them interact over that. And there's one more person that I want next to me. Uh, you all can be part of it as well. But Marty, I want you next to me on that time. Because th Psalm 34 is Marty's favorite psalm. 
And so I want to hear Marty whisper into my ear as David and, uh, and, and Peter are talking, and I want Marty to say, yeah, I tell you, this is how it applies to life. So anyway, I want that for all of this section. David writes, and, and Peter quotes, just beautiful, beautiful proverbial Proverbs-like truths in this section. He writes, and this is where it begins, of the desire, of the desire to love life and to see good days. And I'll come back to that in just a minute. To love life and to see good days. Those are beautiful words. That's a wonderful picture that is given to us. But as we approach this text this morning, I want us to do that with our eyes open. I want to approach this text and even that idea of good days and loving life with our eyes wide open because the eyes of both David and Peter as they approached these things, they were wide open in terms of the situation that was around them. The fact that life is full of tensions and of contradictions, of, of joys and of sorrows, of light and of darkness. So this week, I prepared this sermon, and as I prepared this sermon, I was uh, sitting at our dining room table in a very comfortable wooden chair as I worked. The ambient temperature around me was 68 degrees. The birds sang outside. I have a bird feeder, and I love to fill up the bird uh, feeder with the seed and watch the birds and listen to the birds sing. Our dog slept quietly nearby. There was a stunning flower arrangement that it was on the table probably 18 inches from where I was sitting that I would just periodically pop my head up from writing and look at the flower arrangement that was there. I was using, I don't have it here with me, I was using a pen that uh, my son Tim gave to me that I've used for several years. I was, I was working from this Bible right here, a beautiful Bible that Mike LaRusso gave to me years ago. It was lovely was absolutely lovely. And at the very same time, my friends in Ukraine were freeing, fleeing for their lives, were, were trying to get out of the country, trying to avoid bombs, trying to help people who were hurting. Ivan couldn't figure out how to get to his con congregation. They were doing the best they could through the internet, trying to connect with people while their lives, while their cities, People are being destroyed. The, the words that are before us today are beautiful. They are absolutely beautiful, but they do not assume that all is well with the world. They don't assume that at all. These words don't ignore suffering, tragedy, or persecution. Instead, these men, David and Peter, and then the audience to whom Peter was writing it, they are living in the midst of it. And that's critical for us to see. Maybe David penned, or I'm saying penned, maybe he wrote that psalm in the cave afterwards. But the cave wasn't a nice place to be thinking these thoughts that are in Psalm 34. David and Peter have seen the difficulties of this world. They've experienced it. They know the bitterness of this life. Both of these men, if you know their lives, 
they not only know the bitterness of life in this world, they know the bitterness of sin in their own souls. Deep inside of them, they have felt deep bitterness. They've tasted it, but they also know another taste. They've tasted something else. That they, they know that in the midst of the valley of the shadow of death, in the midst of the valley of tears, there is in fact a sweeter taste. There is a taste in this world that overcomes the bitterness of this world without ignoring the bitterness of this world. It is the taste of the goodness of God. Right? That's what we read in Psalm 34. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Taste it now and see it now. In the midst of these things, the Lord is good. And that's what we're being called to do as well. And that's why Peter has already quoted that verse in his letter. He's already quoted it to them because he knows what's coming. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Peter assumes suffering, evil, ill-treatment, harsh words, rejection, marginalization. And he says, in the midst of this reality, this then is your Christian calling. This, what I have for you here, this is your mission. It is your mission within the church of Jesus Christ. It is your mission in this world as well. So the text before us today, this quotation coming out of the psalm, has a very natural progression to it that we can follow along with. It is, is the progression that goes from the desires unto the way and then the promise. Those are, the, those are really, it's not just one, two, and three verses, but that's what you can see going through these verses. So let's begin with the desire that David begins with, that Peter begins with. Here, here's how it's stated. Whoever desires to love life and to see good days. To love life and to see good days. Both David and Peter begin with something of a, of, a, of a rhetorical question or of an assumption that they're making at the outset. The, the question is really this, what do you want? What do you want out of life? What, what do you desire out of life? Uh, I don't know about you, but have you ever taken time to sit down and think about that question and write out your answer to it? What do you want? out of life. I suppose for some people, if we gave that as an assignment, maybe some people uh, would make a list. Say, these, these are the things, these are the top 10 things that I want from this life, that I desire from this life. I, I suppose there are others who would be more inclined to see that in terms of an image, some kind of a, maybe a, a, a painting or maybe just an image in front of them. That's what I desire. I desire this life out here, and they can visualize what that life, that good life would look like. Uh, I, I suspect others, like myself, would do that in a narrative form. I had that as an assignment in college many years ago to kind of write out what my life would look like in 10 years, 
30 years and 50 years, to write out the desires for things in our life. What did we want to see? Some people would probably be very specific. Other people would be more general, kind of taking things as they come and adapting them as they go. But regardless of how you would approach something like that or a question like that, that we approach it, that we address it seems to be an essential thing. And so for David and for Peter picking up on it here, for the sake of what they are doing, they put it in wonderfully broad terms. Whoever desires to love life and see good days. Whatever you might say are your specific applications of what that means, love life, see good days. Really, who wouldn't say yes to that? Who wouldn't raise their hand? If, if we were to be asked, don't raise your hands, but if we were to be asked, would you like that? Would you like to love life and see good days? Is that your desire? Surely everybody would raise their hand for that. But here's an important question, and I think it's a, it's a question that we have to take in mind right as we look at this passage as it's in the context of Peter. And, and it's this question, how far, when you think of that question, what do you want out of life, how far does that extend? Even as I've said it so far, how far does that extend? Does it simply encompass this life, this present life, the, the present life that we have now? Or when I say, or when Peter says, or when David says, what do you want? What, what, do you want? what are your desires? Do the days stretch beyond the immediate? Do they stretch beyond this present life? Peter is most definitely using David's words here to peek into eternity. In one sense, we can think about that on a 20-year, 50-year basis. What do we want out of life? Peter is unquestionably, undoubtingly, peeking over the horizon into the world to come and talking about loving life and good days. From the very beginning of the letter, right, he has talked about an inheritance. Chapter 1, verse 4, an inheritance that is imperishable, that is undefiled, that is unfading, that is kept in heaven for you. So you have an inheritance that is going to be given to you, but the very point of what Peter is writing is you don't have it yet. And in our section here, just before this passage, when he's addressing husbands and wives and then kind of moves into more generally men and women, he talks about us as being joint heirs, fellow heirs of the grace of life. So this inheritance, men and women are joint heirs of this inheritance that is coming to us. And then just before this, in verse 9, where we closed off two weeks ago, to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. Now, obtain obscures this a little bit. It's actually just the same word. It's inherit a blessing. So we're back to the, the exact same thought that he had from the very beginning. If you want to inherit this blessing, if you want to inherit and see good days, then you behave, you conduct yourselves in the way that Peter has said. Because if this life is all there is with all of its ugliness, then if you desired to see good days and to love life in this life only, we are doomed. We're doomed. Loving life and seeing good days, if you're only thinking about this world, it's a fool's errand. It's a dream that will never be filled unless for some, in some way you were able to completely close your eyes to all of the suffering in the world. But 
even then you would experience it in your own life and in your own soul. But if instead, if instead, the idea of loving life and seeing good days extends over the horizon of this world and into eternity, then those desires stand. Those desires stand on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Those desires stand on the ascension of Jesus Christ at the right hand of God and on the promises of Jesus Christ to go and prepare a place for you, to give you that inheritance when you come to that place. So Peter is most definitely, ultimately, looking into eternity. But I don't think that denies the present idea of the love of life and even good days now. If those things were the sum of our desires, if they were the only thing that we would think about, then that's too short-sighted. But as a step towards eternity, we can now taste of that goodness. That is David's point. David is most definitely talking about this world. Most definitely when he's writing Psalm 34. Peter, I think, is peeking into eternity, but also talking about right now, saying right now, those good days that are going to be the days of eternity, they've begun to broke, break, break into this world right now. And so you've got a taste right now, a taste of the goodness of God in our lives right now. We can now serve the Lord in this world with the satisfaction of looking back at the end of a day and saying, that was a good day. That was a good day because I had opportunity in this day to love the Lord, to serve the Lord. So, the desire is set forth, and then Peter moves into, with David, the way or the how-to of pursuing that desire. If, if good days and loving life, if you say, okay, that's, that's my desire, that's my goal, well then, of course, the next question that you've got is, how are you going to pursue that? What are the things that you're going to do in order to see these good days, in order to love life? And so David slash Peter supplies the answer to that, and you can see it indicated in your Bibles by the three statements that begin, let him, right? It's, it's the second part of verse 10 and then into 11. Let him keep his tongue. Let him turn away from evil. Let him seek peace and pursue it. That's the way. If you want to see good days, if you want to love life, this is the way that is charted out for us. The first category then of these, are, are, of these let hymns addresses our speech. Peter says, David says, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. So, if you want to get to the end of today, of today, with the satisfaction of you've seen a good day, then careful what you say. Careful what you say today. Because that has a lot to do with how you're going to perceive this day when you lay down on your bed. Be careful what you say. Developing a speech ethic and practicing that speech ethic is essential for loving life. And this is the wisdom of Proverbs. I mean, this is all over the book of Proverbs in terms of being careful what we say, being careful with the amount of words that come out of 
our mouths. And of course, if we just turned our Bible back about three pages, we would read in the book of James, oh, how great a fire is set ablaze by, or great a forest fire is set ablaze by such a small fire. Such a small thing is the tongue. And yet it has the ability to cause so much difficulty. With it, the tongue, with it we can bless God. With it we can speak words of grace to one another. We can build somebody up. And of course, with it, we can curse one another. And we can tear one another down. And we can make a wreck and a mess of things with this little instrument inside of us in about a minute. Doesn't take any time at all. It is a dangerous thing. Now, Peter has already actually prepared us for this, if not, frankly, instructed us in it. In verse 22 of uh, chapter 2, he talked about Jesus with this. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. And then verse 23, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. So nothing untrue came out of the mouth of our Savior. And when he was being persecuted, when they were hurling insults upon him, he did not respond or reply to that in kind. So he's already talked about it there in terms of Jesus. And then when he started the section at the beginning of chapter 3, we already saw that there are going to be situations in this world where quietness is more effective than speech, at least initially. At least initially, it's going to be better to be quiet than to speak and to say something. And that's where he says uh, that they might be one without a word. Sometimes it's better not to use words and instead better to live in a good and God-honoring way. And then the instruction that we just had right before our section here says this directly to us in case we didn't get the idea that we're supposed to apply this having been the example of Jesus, in case we didn't get the idea that we're supposed to cross-apply it from the section in which he was talking specifically about husbands and wives, Peter says, this, this is for all y'all. This is what all of you are supposed to do. Verse 9, do not return or repay reviling for reviling. So if you want to lay down on your bed tonight and be a good day, then guard your tongue today. Guard your tongue from speaking evil. Guard your tongue from speaking gossip. Guard your tongue from lying. Guard your tongue from tearing somebody else down. And try and use it to bless. So speech ethics is the first let him. And then it goes on from speech ethics, which reveal the heart, as Jesus says, to verse 11, as we start there, to this statement here, let him turn away from evil and do good. So we turn from speech to actual actions. Now this section right here, this has been the clarion call that Peter has been giving throughout this entire letter to this point, and it will continue on throughout the rest of the letter as well. If we desire to see good days, and who doesn't, if you desire to see good days, here's the proverbial truth. Don't do the evil. Turn away from the evil thing that will tempt you today and instead do that which is good. I trust that you understand here that Peter is in no way suggesting 
that this is some kind of a works-based salvation, that if you do enough of these good things that you will have your salvation. Instead, what Peter is talking about, what David is talking about, is that when salvation is at work, this is what it looks like. It looks like you making efforts to do good for other people. Not just not to harm them, not just to mind your own business and keep to yourself. It looks like you doing good for other people, thinking about how do I do good for the people who are around me. It is asking ourselves, in the name of Jesus, unto the glory of Jesus, after the example of Jesus, for the mission of Jesus, and because it is my desire to do good, then the question is this. What are the temptations that you are going to face today to do that which is evil? What are they? Turn from them. Be aware of them. Turn from them. And ask yourself the question instead, what is the good I can do today? What has God set before me as the good thing that I can do? Third category then. So we've got these two things that are there already. We've got the speech ethic. We've got the action ethic. And then the third, let him, is at the second part of verse 11. Let him seek peace and pursue it. I wonder if that one's a little bit surprising to us. I wonder if it's a little bit surprising to us that that would be the third thing that is listed after things that are very, very common to us, speaking and acting. That's, you kind of do that every day. Peter says, no, 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 there's one more thing. You have to be a pursuer of peace, someone who seeks after peace. I don't think it's a stretch at all, and I've tried to make this clear throughout uh, the preaching over the last month plus now, that as Peter has been working his way through these various spheres, that much of this exhortation that Peter has given from chapter 2, verse 11 onward, is exhortation in peacemaking strategy. Peter is trying to say, this is how you live in a peaceful or at least a peaceable way in this crooked world in which we live. How can we do that? A world full of tensions and conflict and contradictions. How do you do that? You live peaceably by taking heed of the instructions that Peter has given thus far. That's what Peter's saying. If you want to live peaceably in this world, listen to the instructions that I've given to you because they are strategic in terms of peace. You do this by the seeking and the pursuing of peace as an intentional priority in our lives. It should be a priority in our lives that we are peacemakers. Now, when we hear that, I understand, especially now in the context of a war, that perhaps when we think of peace, we think of uh, the world wars and things like that. And we go, well, wait a minute, what's my responsibility with respect to making peace on that level? Very little. Very little is our responsibility in those kind of terms. But making peace is actually much closer to home than that. The, the first peacemaking that needed to be done was between a man and a woman and between God and a man. Peace is something very close to us. It's very personal to us. Peace needs to take place between brothers, right? I mean, Genesis 4, right after the fall, what we see is two brothers, one killing the other. 
Making peace is not just a matter of how would I resolve conflict between Russia and Ukraine. If you've got an answer, I would love to know that. But in any case, it's really about how do I love my brother? How do I love my husband, my wife? How do I deal with a relationship that's gone south somehow? Those are the peacemaking activities that are given to us. Those are the things that we have to pursue because if you don't pursue them, you can rest assured that conflict will arise. It will take place. You don't have to do anything for conflict to arise. It will take place. We pursue these things by being as much as possible, if I can quote myself from this, an outpost of shalom in this world. That individually, or as a husband and wife, as friends, as a family, as a small group, as a church, we seek as much as possible to be an outpost of the shalom of God into the world that is around us. I already quoted this as I prayed for us this morning. Paul instructs in Timothy, that's our prayer to God, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. That's the prayer that we make to God. And what the scriptures teach us is that God the Father is the God of peace, that God the Father sent his Son, who is the Prince of Peace in this world, that God the Son, through his death on our behalf, established peace in this world, that he then promised peace. He said, my peace I give to you. He greeted us in peace. He sent to us the Spirit, and one of the fruits of the Holy Spirit in our lives is the fruit of peace. And now, because it is of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, is the mission of the body of Christ to seek peace and pursue it. That's the instruction, straight from the Word of God unto us. So Peter has provided for us then the desire, love life, see good days, the way in your speech, in your actions, and by peacemaking. And finally, we've got the promise or the foundation for all of this, the great reality that undergirds all of this. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. And that's the truth of God. That is the truth of God, whether we found ourselves cowering in a basement or in a deep metro station in Kiev while bombs fall around us and shake. And that's the truth if we sit here in, I suspect it's probably 70 degrees in here right now, in a beautiful 19th century, beautiful building. The Lord is towards the righteous, and he is against evildoers. That is the clearest testimony that we have in Scripture, and it begins, uh, I mean, we're looking at Psalm 34, Psalm 1. Psalm 1 says it this way, Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. It's the promise that begins it. You have to understand that the Lord has these things. He will judge these things. And His eye is upon those who are righteous. 
Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. That is the confidence of the righteous. And in Psalm 34, as we read in the Old Testament reading, it closes in this same way. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted. He saves the crushed in spirit. Affliction will slay the wicked, and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. But the Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. There's no condemnation. There's no condemnation for those who have trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ, those upon whom he has placed and counted his righteousness, and those who in his name are seeking that very righteousness. Because the Spirit of God is at work in them. Brothers and sisters, there's a sense to which we can see good days and the love of life in this world, even in the midst of the tension and the contradictions that are all around us. God is being patient with this world, desiring that people would come to him in repentance, calling his people unto himself. So all of these commands that we've got apply to us today. These aren't hard things. You can't walk away from here today and say, really, that doesn't have anything to do with my life. That's somebody else's life, or that's, you know, we're talking about theology. No, this is about as practical as it gets. Watch what you say, be careful of what you do, and seek after peace. That's going to be today. Today, tomorrow, all the rest of our days, it's right there. In the world to come, the only life you'll know is a life of love. That's all you'll know. A life of love and a love of life. And the only days you will know are good days. That's the inheritance that is promised for us. Good days of glorifying our King and enjoying Him forever. And if that's your desire, then that is a good desire. Let's pray. Lord, we pray that you would shape our desires. We recognize that our desires in and of themselves are uh, malformed in any number of ways. They've, they've suffered corruption. And so we don't always want what we should want and desire what we should desire. Lord, we pray that you would help us to desire what is good, to desire that which is characteristic of life and of love and that we would seek after those things in our lives. We pray that you would make that a reality. We thank you for the new life that you have given to us that allows us even the ability to consider those things. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.